If you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 will be our text this Lord's Day. And uh, we're going to be dividing this chapter into two sections. We'll go through verses 1 through 17 today and then the remainder of the chapter next Lord's Day. If you've been with us, you know that we've been preaching. I've been preaching through First and Second Samuel. And so uh, we've gone from... The beginning of 1 Samuel where Israel has no king but they they want a king to be like neighboring nations. God gives them a king in Saul and Saul starts out well but then he is disobedient to God and God removes his anointing from Saul. He anoints David but it will take decades before David becomes the king reigning over Israel. And so we followed through David's struggles. He's gone from cave to cave, city to city. He spent so much of his time on the run, and now uh, he's no longer in a cave, he's in a castle. He is reigning over the people of Israel. The ark has been returned to Israel. That's what we saw uh, in the last chapter. It seems like all the, the pieces are coming together. And that's where we pick up in Second Samuel chapter 7. And so out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand once again as I read for us today's passage, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. And this is what God's word says. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Who, or excuse me, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up my people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but... I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should serve and be the prince over the people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a people, a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And your days are fulfilled. And when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, 
whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. If you would pray with me. Father, as we consider your word in this ancient text, this this word that was given thousands of years ago, help us to see how it directly relates to us today. Help us to see how this passage is so crucial in our understanding of the gospel. Help us to see our need to repent and to trust in Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We've now come to the point, as I mentioned, where David is indeed reigning over Israel. You think about this for a moment. You you think about all those years that went by when, when David was on the run. All those times that he would lay his head down on a rock in a cave, and, and he would think about what was to come. And, and now all those thoughts, all those dreams, it's all come to fruition. There he is in this magnificent cedar palace built for a king, and, and now he's reigning over a united Israel. I would imagine that David's day in Second Samuel 7 probably started like many of his days. He probably gathered before him his cabinet and received reports on activities in his kingdom. And perhaps he had the minister of trade come to him first and, and asked about how relationships were going with neighboring nations. And of course we know at this point that uh, David has married a number of women and many of those have been strategic alliances with neighboring nations. And so the minister of trade would probably tell him, well, well trade's going great. <laughs> We have everything we need. We have an abundance of supplies for our people, provisions, and everything we could hope for and need. And next, perhaps, he would turn to a city planner. And as now Jerusalem has been established as that that central place for God's people, now this would be the city of David. Perhaps his city planner would tell him about how plans were going in the city, how water shafts were being built, and, and how everything was going well. In fact, maybe they were ahead of schedule. At this point. And then David would turn to the trusted commander of his army, Joab. And you can imagine how that conversation might go. He might ask Joab, well, what's the report from the north? And Joab would tell him, well, there's peace in the north. No one's attacking us. There are no more raids. There's, there's peace with our enemies there. Then he would ask Joab, well, what of the south? And Joab would tell him, well, not only the south, but all these surrounding areas. David, there's, there's peace. There's no more battles to fight. There's no more wars to win. The kingdom is at peace. And perhaps in that moment, David would walk over to the window in his palace, and he would look out that window, and he would peer on a tent. And he knew that in that tent, that that was the place they had established for the ark of God that had been brought to Jerusalem. And whether it's in that moment or something he had been thinking about before, and now he shares his idea with Nathan the prophet. That here he is living in this palace built of 
cedar, this palace for a king, and, and the ark of God, which was the, the dwelling place of God, was in a tent. And that just didn't seem right to David. And so now the, the kingdom is at peace, the economy is good. Now it's time, David believes, to build a house for God. I mean, it seemed like a really good idea. David here isn't turning to Nathan and saying, you know, I think we need to knock out a few walls and make the palace bigger. He's not turning to Joab and saying, you know, I think we need to expand the kingdom even farther. If there's no enemies here, let's go find an enemy somewhere and conquer them. His motives seem to be pure. His intentions seem to be right. He wants to do a good and what seems to be a righteous thing. And Nathan hears this idea and he agrees. He tells him to do whatever is in his heart. But then that night, God sends a word to Nathan to share with David. And he tells David, no. And that's where we'll begin in our outline that you have there before you. Point one, the Lord tells David, no. Now, David here doesn't do what we've seen David do so often. Uh, often we see at points where David is about to take some type of strategic step where, where he inquires of the Lord. And I don't think we need to read too much into this. Maybe he inquired of the Lord. That's just not in the text. But it seems like he, he took the proper steps here. Nathan, we're told, is the prophet. And Nathan is the one who would go before the Lord on behalf of David. Nathan is the one who would speak to David on behalf of the Lord. Of course, we know David, or excuse me, Nathan well from what is to come. If you know the story of David and Bathsheba and that great sin that David commits and how he is ultimately convicted of that sin and brought to repentance through the prophet Nathan. We, we remember that story, we remember his name, and here it is where we're introduced to him. And we're introduced in the context where David wants to do this thing that's in his heart. And Nathan says, go ahead and do it. And yet God tells Nathan to tell David, no. And just a side note, it's important that we recognize here that Nathan was a prophet. Nathan did share words from the Lord with David and with others. That didn't mean that everything Nathan ever said was prophecy. And here I believe what we have is just Nathan using his own wisdom as best he can, hearing this idea, which again, it seemed like a good idea, and saying, sure, that, that sounds like a good plan. In essence, Nathan turns to David and says, David, follow your heart. But the Lord tells David no. And he does that through reminding David of the history of his people. He takes him back to the Exodus. He reminds them that during that entire time when God was leading his people out of Egypt and leading them to the promised land, he didn't have a house. He had a tent. If you were with us in our study of Exodus, you may recall how that looked, that when God gave instructions to his people for that tent, for that tabernacle, they were to, as they moved, they were to place it in the middle of their camp. And perhaps in your Bible, you, you may even have among the maps some, some depictions of this. If not, you, you can look this up online. And 
it's interesting to see the depiction because there you have in the center was the tent, the tabernacle, the, the dwelling place where the ark of God was. And then around the tent you had all these encampments, all these tents of God's people, and every one of them would face the tabernacle. The, the tent of God, the presence of God, was in the center of his people. When the Israelites would get up in the morning and open up that flap to their tent, they would be looking towards the tabernacle. They would be reminded of the very presence of God. And here God says to David, I didn't have a house then. I had a tent. And wherever the people went, God went. God dwelled with his people. Now why that history lesson here? I think it's important for us to note that as God tells David no, he also reminds David of his presence. That when God says to David, that this thing you want, the answer is no. He's reminding him that even in his no, he, he is there and he is present. And friends, that's an important reminder for us because you and I have experienced God telling us no. And in those moments, we are tempted to see God as distant and as removed and as uninvolved and uncaring. And here we have this reminder that while God is telling David no, at the very same time, he's reminding him of his presence. We need that reminder. Perhaps you need that reminder today. Maybe some of you are struggling right now this morning because God has told you no. We, as many of you know, moved recently. And in our move, I was going through uh, some papers. You know, we all have those, those drawers and those places in our homes where you just kind of throw things and stash things and eventually you have to go back through them. And as I was going through these papers and sorting, you know, the burn pile and the trash pile, I, I came across a letter dated January 27th, 2005. It was a no from God. Now, the letter was not directly from God. <laughs> it was from the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. At that point in ministry, Sandy and I felt that the Lord was leading us to serve as missionaries overseas, and I was in seminary in my studies, and so we, along with some friends, started the process of being appointed as missionaries with the IMB, we would go through a fairly exhaustive interview process and clearance process, and it looked like everything was in place and moving forward, that we would be appointed as missionaries, that we would move overseas. We were having conversations with family. We were making plans. And then I got that letter in the mail. And that letter essentially said that uh, because of my family's history with kidney disease, because of my own diagnosis with kidney disease, although at the time my kidney function was perfectly fine, uh, that I would not be appointed as a missionary, that we would not go overseas with the International Mission Board. It was a clear no from God. And I can tell you now, some years later, I can still remember the disappointment of reading that letter. I mean, again, it, it wasn't, at least in our opinion, it wasn't this selfish motive. It wasn't this wrong intention. We wanted to take the gospel to the nations. That there are people 
around the world on a daily basis who are dying and entering into a Christless eternity who need someone to go to them and share the gospel with them and we wanted to go. And God said no. And I was disappointed. And maybe you can think this morning of a time where you've struggled with disappointment. Maybe now is that time. Maybe God's telling you no to something. Maybe you're, you're praying for something, you've prayed for something, you've asked God for something, and, and, and your intentions are good. This thing seems right. And yet God says no. And in your disappointment and in my disappointment, our temptation is to ask the question, God, where are you? God, why wouldn't you say yes? I mean, on our end of things, it makes perfect sense for God to say yes. It seems like a good thing we're asking for. It seemed like a good thing David was asking for. Why wouldn't God say yes? Maybe it's because he doesn't care. Maybe it's because he's just not all that interested in being involved in our lives. Maybe that's the moment where we just ask, God, where are you? David here in his disappointment is reminded of the answer to that question just as we are today. That God is right here with us. And that's the story of the gospel, isn't it? Emmanuel, God with us. That picture of the tabernacle in the center of God's people, it, it was a foretaste. It was a pointing ahead to when God would take on flesh to the incarnation. Jesus would come and would dwell among us. In the very beginning of God's word, we have a picture of God in the garden dwelling with his people. And at the very end of his word, we have a picture of God in a new heaven and a new earth dwelling with his people. From beginning to end, the heart of God is to dwell with us. God has not left us. That doesn't mean we're not going to have disappointment. And we're not going to have no's, and we're not going to have sufferings, and we're not going to have heartache, and we're not going to have pain. God's presence doesn't mean God always says yes. In fact, as many as us know, God often says no, even when we ask for things that seem good and seem right. How do we reconcile that? <laughs> we look to His Word, and we see in it places where even Jesus himself asks for that which seems like a good thing. Jesus going to the cross, he knows what he's going to endure. He knows what it will be to bear the wrath of God for you and I. And he goes before God and he asks him to let that cut pass. And God tells Jesus, no. Now you can go to that passage and you read Matthew 26 and I think what we see there, Jesus knows why the no is no. I mean, it's clear that this is the Lord's will. That it's clear that this is the Lord's plan. He, he knows why the no is a no. But in 2 Samuel 7, David doesn't know that. And in your life and in my life today, often we don't know that. And years may go by and we still don't know that. And this side of eternity, we may never understand it. 
But what we see here is that David is given not a reason for the no, but David is indeed given the plan of God. And God, in the midst of telling David, no, I'm not going to let you do what it is you want to do, what you asked to do. You're not going to build me a house. God tells David, I'm going to build you a house. And he unfolds this, this great covenant that we have in 2 Samuel 7, which takes us to the second point there. The Lord makes a covenant with David. And so the way this chapter begins is David wanting to build this house, and it takes a really strong turn here and, and gives us one of the most crucial chapters and passages that we have in all of Scripture. The Lord makes a covenant with David. We refer to it as the Davidic covenant. And in short, what that covenant is, is that the Lord promises King David that he would build for him, he would establish for him a house or a dynasty of kings who would perpetually reign over God's people. Now, again, consider the context here. David's only the second king of Israel. Remember how it went for the first king? I mean, Saul becomes king, and Saul and the people are probably looking at neighboring nations, and they're thinking, well, Saul's king, and Saul's going to have a dynasty. I mean, Jonathan will be next, and then Jonathan's child after that, and then his son and his son and his son, and there's going to be this great house of Saul that will be built. And we know how that story ended. Saul disobeyed God. God removed his anointing from Saul. Saul kingdom would come to an end utterly and completely most of his sons would be killed in battle a remaining son Ishbosheth would reign just for a short time but as rather a, a puppet king and it gets to the point where we get to the end of Saul's rather short-lived dynasty you can't even really call it a dynasty and and the scripture makes it clear that there's nobody in Saul's line that's going to have any opportunity ever to reign over the people and so then David becomes king, and that's what he has in front of him, this short-lived reign when it comes to family reigning after him. And it's in that context, though, that, that God makes this covenant with him. And what do we learn about this covenant here? Well, verse 12, we learn that a descendant of David's will rule after David. So unlike Saul, David's son indeed will reign. I believe this is a clear reference to Solomon who would reign after David. Verse 13, he says, he shall build a house for my name. That's exactly what Solomon will do. Verse 14, when he committed, commits iniquity, I will discipline him, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Now that's critical. Because remember what happened with Saul. He disobeyed God and God removed his anointing from him. Saul disobeyed God and his kingdom came to an end. But here he's telling David, your son, like you, David, is going to sin, is going to commit iniquity, and I'm going to discipline them. There's, he's going to have a consequence for his sin. There's always a consequence for sin. But I'm not going to take him off the throne for it. And I'm not going to take my hand off your family because of it. In fact, my steadfast love will never depart from I mean, it's quite an amazing promise that he's making to David when you consider 
all of David's sin and all the sin that comes from his family? There's a picture there, isn't there, though? <laughs> of God's covenant-keeping steadfast love. That There's a picture here that points us forward to a covenant that, that we come into with God that is a covenant that he keeps. And when we sin, there's a consequence. And when we sin, he disciplines us, but his steadfast love never leaves us. God doesn't abandon us. He is with us. We have that picture here. And notice this covenant language that God uses, how long David's dynasty would last. Verse 13, I'll establish the throne of his, David's offspring's kingdom forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now for those of you who know David's story and know the story of his family and his dynasty, you may recall that his throne and the lineage that sits on the throne is only going to last about 400 years. Zedekiah, who's the son of Josiah, he'll be the last king to sit on the throne in David's line. You can go to 2 Kings 25 and read about the end of his story, and it's a pitiful one. The Babylonians siege Jerusalem, they... They capture Zedekiah, they slaughter his sons in front of him, they gouge out his eyes, and they take him as a captive back to Babylon where he dies, and with him dies that dynasty. So God makes this promise to David, and his son reigns, and his son's son reigns, and you can follow that line, and you follow it through 400 years. Now, don't get me wrong, 400 years is a long time. I mean, we as a nation, the United States of America, we're not even quite 250 years old yet. Uh, imagine what it would be as a nation if we had one family leading us and ruling over us as a country for these 245 years and for another 150 more. 400 years is a long time. But it's not forever. So... So how do we reconcile that God tells David that he's going to establish his dynasty, his family, his family's reign on the throne forever, and it only lasts 400 years? How, how do you put all that together? here? That brings us to that third point, and really the entire point of First and Second Samuel. <laughs> the Lord's covenant with David is fulfilled in Jesus. And it all points towards Jesus. That's the big picture and that's the point we need to make sure that we don't miss it's the point that the new testament writers under the inspiration of the holy spirit they clearly saw it and that's when you come why when you come to matthew's gospel and matthew begins his genealogy of jesus the very first thing he says about jesus in matthew chapter 1 verse 1 is jesus christ the son of david and matthew in essence takes a pencil, and he draws a line from David to Jesus. And he helps the people to see. Remember what God promised in 2 Samuel 7. Remember the covenant he made with David. Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant. I believe Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understood this, as did Peter when he preaches at Pentecost. I mean, Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, here Peter is, and he's 
he's saying very clearly that, that Jesus is the one that was promised to us in this covenant with David. He, he quotes, he refers back to 2 Samuel 7. And in essence, what Peter is saying is that Jesus had to have been raised from the dead because if he wasn't raised from the dead, then this kingdom can't be established forever. But he indeed was raised from the dead and his throne is eternal. And that's the picture we have of Jesus throughout the New Testament. That's what the writer of Hebrews makes clear in Hebrews chapter 1, where he too refers back to 2 Samuel 7 and quotes from 2 Samuel 7 to talk about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, whose throne is eternal and never comes to an end. Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant that God makes with David. So what does that mean for us today? Well, it means everything, doesn't it? <laughs> it means everything. It means that in the midst of our sufferings, disappointments, losses, no's, whatever it may be that comes our way, that if we have Jesus, we have everything. It means that we, we serve a king whose kingdom will never come to an end. It means that we are children of God, bought by the blood of Jesus. It means that Jesus is the forever king who has not abandoned us. It means that Jesus one day will return for us. It means that Jesus will reign over a new heaven and a new earth, and we will dwell with him in glory. It means everything. Because Jesus is our rock. And therefore, we need not lean on anyone or anything else. And if you have or if you are, you will soon find, if you've not already, that those people, those things, they will let you down. And there's one rock. Now, the rock of all ages, as we'll sing in a moment, and that's Jesus. Have you put your trust in him and your hope in him? See, the gospel is very clear, friends. We see from beginning to end that God created us to have perfect fellowship with Him. He, he dwelled there in the garden with Adam and Eve, but that fellowship was broken because they sinned. And every child of Adam and Eve has been sinning ever since, including everyone in this room. And the Scripture says that not only have we all sinned, but that the wages of that sin, what we rightly deserve for our sin is death. What we deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus on the cross, he, he takes that wrath on our behalf. He, he pays the penalty for our sin that, that we might have his righteousness and we might have eternal life, that we might return to the garden and dwell with God forever. But the scripture is very clear that in order to do that, we, we need to confess Christ as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We need to repent and turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. And when we do that, if you've done that, then you know what it is for Jesus to be your rock. I've shared before and I'll close with the story of Augustus Toplady. Augustus was born in Ireland in 1740. If you know your history, you know that in 1740, 1741, there was a great famine in Ireland. 
crops, livestock, everything died. There was mass starvation. It's estimated that about 40% of Ireland's population died in that two-year period during the Irish famine. And this was the context that Augustus Toplady was born into. He lived a life from an early age of great disappointment and lots of no's. His father died soon after he was born. If anyone had a reason to feel abandoned by God and disappointed in God, it was likely him. And yet, his life would take a radical turn when he turned 16 years old. He was walking near his home by a barn, and there was a preacher who had gathered a crowd by that barn and was preaching a sermon and a call to repentance at this barn near his house. And he stopped out of curiosity and just listened for a few moments. He heard that preacher quote from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And God used that passage and that sermon to bring this 16-year-old Augustus to faith in Jesus. He would then dedicate the rest of his life to studying the Word of God. He would train to be a minister, but he would still deal with great disappointment and suffering. In fact, he died of tuberculosis at the age of 37. But before he died, he wrote these words, and I'll read them to you this morning, and then we're going to sing them. He wrote this, Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Have you hidden yourself? In Christ, are you clinging to Jesus today? And if not, friend, then the invitation is for you to come and to do that very thing. So if you would stand together now as we prepare for our time of response, and as I pray for us and we sing Rock of Ages. Father God, we thank you for these words written by a young man who knew what it was to suffer. And we thank you for this reminder from your word of 2 Samuel 7 and, and in David's life. And while his intentions seemed to be good and his motives seemed to be right, you, you told him no. Perhaps there's some here this morning who are struggling with that very thing. Perhaps that they are asking for something that seems to be good and seems to be right. And yet you've said no. Or, or perhaps like what we see unfold in David's life. Perhaps you've said not yet. Perhaps you have 
plans to answer that request in a way that brings you great glory, much more than if you answered it now. Whatever it may be, Father, help us to trust in you and to cling to you. Help us to repent and have faith. Lord, if there's anyone here who's yet to hide themselves in Jesus, to turn from their sin, to confess Christ is Lord, to believe in their heart that you raised Christ from the dead, I pray, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. And I pray for each of us, Lord, that you would help us to trust in you and to cling to Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Church family and guests, we're going to sing Rock of Ages. And as we do, I will be available down front here to counsel with you, to talk with you if God's leading you to come and start the process of joining this church family, to come and confess Christ as your Lord and to follow through in obedience and baptism. If you just need somebody to pray with you, I'd be glad to do that. So come as God leads and let's lift our voices and sing Rock of Ages. Bless them all.